And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven, and came and rolled back the stone from the door, <clears throat> and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. And the guard shook for fear of him, and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. And now that's what we're celebrating here today. It, it may be in a little different way that we're used to, but that's what we're celebrating here today. You know, I, I was sharing with the first service this morning, by the way, you chose the better service to come to or gathering because it was all the way to the back this morning, which is a great turnout. And we thank you for being here this morning. But, but let me just say this. Your children who are sitting there in the car with you right now, they will never forget this particular Easter, I guarantee you. They will always remember this. So we're actually, when you think about it, we're not only celebrating the resurrection, we're creating a memory around that resurrection. And uh, I think this is a great thing. And so I want to thank you for being here with us, taking time out of your schedule to be here. And, and, and I know God will bless you. At least that's our prayer for you here this morning. Well, we're going to continue the series we began last week entitled, Look Again, A New Perspective on Easter. If you have a way of looking at it, turn to Ephesians chapter 2 or get your phone out or whatever you need. Uh, we're definitely going to be looking at some verses there in Ephesians chapter 2 today. Now, the story that surrounds Easter is one of the most recognized dramas of all time. I mean, think about it. This is Easter weekend. Now, we prefer to call it Resurrection Sunday. But the thing that really surprises us is when we look at this Easter Sunday or this what we call Resurrection Sunday, the thing is we celebrate the resurrection every time we come together on Sunday. The world happens to look in on this particular time of year about what the resurrection and its meaning is all about. Now, when you look at the resurrection, many of us could talk about and read the, uh, the, the scriptural account of what I just read, or we, we know the story. Many of us know the story since we were small children. But what I want to do this morning is take Ephesians chapter 2 and kind of give you the background to what the resurrection is really all about. Now, the resurrection of Jesus guarantees the benefits of the salvation he provided through the cross, which means when you receive the salvation he provides, you have two life stories. I mean, think about that. You have a life story before Jesus, and you have a life story after Jesus. And the reason for that, and the reason it is a story before Jesus and after, after Jesus, is the whole idea of the resurrection. The testimony of you having the story before Jesus and after Jesus is the story of resurrection. He brought you to life, and we're going to look at that this morning. But before we do, we need to understand what a real crisis is all about. Many of us would agree that we're living in what the world calls a crisis. There's a virus out there that has, uh, is out there kind of taking the world right now. And many of us would say that that crisis is something that, that is bigger than we are. But let me remind you that there is an even bigger crisis for humanity than this virus. You see, as we go back to the story that I shared last week, we see that God created the world and the cosmos, and he said that it was good. 
Then he created man and said that he, he was very good. Now, what you see here is a picture of an artist admiring his masterpiece. But then the perfect masterpiece became flawed. You know the story. Sin enters the world. <clears throat> now, what was perfect became damaged, and from his perspective, God knew that only the artist could restore what was damaged. Now, again, we're living in a day of a crisis, but since the time sin entered the world, we have always been living in a crisis. And that is where we pick up here in Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2, there are three verses at the very beginning of the chapter where Paul gives us a true picture of this crisis. And he says, basically, first of all, you are, you are, were, are, are spiritually dead. Now, why would I phrase it that way? Well, let me just tell you this this morning, that there's only two types of people right here with us this morning. There are those in which we were spiritually dead, and the Bible says, and there are those who are spiritually dead. If you aren't spiritually dead or were, it is because of the price that Jesus, the sacrifice that Jesus made on your behalf on the cross and the resurrection that guaranteed that. If, if you are in that condition, it means you haven't come to that decision to follow Jesus as a result of what he did on the cross on your behalf. How do we know this? Because of what it says in verse 1. He says, And you God made alive who were dead in trespasses and sin. Now, trespasses means to stumble, to fall, to go in the wrong direction. Sins, it really means to miss the mark, falling short of what is required. And then the Bible says this, which should be the most haunting thing that we read in Scripture is this, for the wages of that sin, those trespasses, is death. It's not just a physical death, it's a spiritual death. So here's what we can take from this, based on verse 1. Committing sinful acts does not make us sinners. We commit sinful acts because we are sinners. That's a part of the flaw. That's a part in which God was admiring his masterpiece, said it's perfect, and not long after that it became flawed. It's because of the sin that came into the world. So, we are born in sin, and then we live and we prove that we were born in sin. That is our crisis. And it's been in play for humanity since the dawn of time. So, what is our predicament? Not only that we're spiritually or were spiritually dead, but we, you are or were following the world, the enemy, and the flesh. Now, according to Ephesians chapter 2, this is saying that these things bring about the destructive things that come to the end because of the sin that we, so easily we are entangled in. So the first thing he says here in verse 2 is the world. He says, in which you once walked according to the course of the world. The pattern of the world. The, the, the world. It's where you look. You thought the world had all the answers. I think many of us have lived long enough to know the world doesn't really have a lot of answers. There's a lot of things that the world hasn't figured out. There's a lot of things that the world's misled by. But not only that, he says we were or are following the enemy. Look at verse 2 again, the second part. According to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. And then there's a third part that we followed before we came to Christ. It's the flesh. Look at verse 3. Among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. 
What he's saying here are these things were influencing our lives in such a way that it was leading to our own destruction. And then he says this about our crisis. You were or are a child of God's wrath. Now it's amazing when we begin to look at who God is, especially in the world in which we live, we never want to see God through this lens. But the fact remains, the Bible talks about those who will receive God's wrath. Let me just say this. Before Jesus Christ, before you came to know him and relied on that provision of salvation and the resurrection guaranteeing it, let me just say that. Before you were marked for, for wrath. Now, your new life is not marked by wrath any longer. But that's what you once were. Look what he says in verse 3. And you were by nature children of wrath, just as so many others. Now, in verses 1 through 3, Paul is describing our crisis. He's saying that's where you once were, or that's where you are now, depending on the salvation that you've received or not. Now, here's the good news when it comes to this crisis. God has a remedy. He has a remedy for our crisis. You look at the virus. You look at all the things that we're dealing with. And, and some doctors are saying it'll be a, a probably a year before we have a cure for the virus or something that can help us with the virus. It's, it's still out there. It's, it's still outside of our reach. But the thing that we need to know about the greatest crisis in our lives is the fact that God has already provided the cure. Here it is. The Bible says in verse 4, basically verses 1, 2, and 3, that we were, and then verse 4, you come to this phrase, it says, but God, but God. Now, what's in that the two-word phrase? In that two-word phrase is our cure, our salvation. It hangs entirely in these two words. Now, here's what I mean by this. Based on what we've already read, we were dead, but God. We were enslaved, but God. We were hopeless, but God. We were self-destructing, but God. We were lost in sin, but God. We were going to experience the wrath of God, but God. Now, the phrase, but God, also speaks of God's provision. It is not only the fact that he, he, he gave us a story before Christ and after Christ. Here's how he brought about the provision that we could have those two stories. Well, first of all, he sent his son. God entered into the picture when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, when we were in the crisis, God began to bring the cure and it came through the Son. His Son was a living, perfect sacrifice. He's, and that's the only way He could have been to, to be the cure for us. His Son dying on the cross, taking our payment of sin and the wrath that was due us. All this was the provision of salvation. His son resurrect, resurrected from the dead. That is to guarantee this provision of salvation. We see here in Ephesians chapter 2, again, what we're reading is what all this Easter weekend, this Resurrection Sunday involves. It's so much more than just the story of a death, burial, resurrection. It's what that promises for those who believe. But here's a real question. What motivated God to provide a cure for our crisis? Well, it all comes from His character. The first thing that we see here is that He is merciful. All of us here today need to thank God that He is merciful. Look at what it says in verse 4. But God, in light of all these things that were said, 
but God. Here's what motivated him, who is rich in mercy. You see, grace is receiving what we don't deserve, and that's his love. Mercy is not receiving what we do deserve, and that's his wrath. And so before we came to know Jesus, before we accepted the provision of the, the death, burial, and resurrection, before that, we were marked for wrath and now no longer because of his mercy. Another characteristic of God is this fact, that he is loving. And that again motivated him to be the cure for our crisis. Look at verse 4 again. Because of his great love with which he loved us. You see, God did not love us because we're lovable or because we're adorable. Now, our mom may think that of us, but that's not what God was looking at us. You see, before, our, before Christ in our life, before we accepted the provision of salvation, let me just say this. Our lives were detestable before God. You may say, well, man, he's so unfair. No, no it goes back to his nature, his character. He couldn't look upon our sin. It's, he's so holy. And the fact is, because of that, he did send his son. Now, someone has said this. You will never experience the fullness of the greatness of God's love for you if you don't see his love in relation to your former crisis. If you don't see just how destitute you were or depraved before you were before salvation, then you probably will not totally encompass the meaning of his love for us. The meaning of his love for us. But thirdly, we see a cure for the crisis. We see he's motivational. What motivated him is because he's sacrificial. Look at verse 5. Even when we were dead, even when there was nothing we could do about our situation, hopeless, helpless, in trespasses, in our sin, he made us alive together with Christ. Again, this is resurrection talk. He made us alive. We were dead, now we're alive. That's resurrection talk. And then he says this, by grace you've been saved. The reason he's taken us from, a, from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive is because of his grace. We didn't deserve it, but he gave it. Now, the Bible says in Romans chapter 5, much more than having now been justified by his blood, that was the provision of salvation, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if we were enemies, we were now we are now reconciled to God through the death of His Son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Again, that is a connection between what this this Easter Sun, this Easter weekend means, the death, burial, resurrection, as it associates with our life, and that's what Ephesians two is trying to demonstrate to us. So, fourthly, what motivated God to provide a cure for us? He is a deliverer. You know, when I think of this idea of being a deliverer, I think of this idea of being a hero. It, it seems like every time uh, my grandsons come over to our house, they, they, they always want to watch some hero story. Uh, they they want to see the Marvel comics or the DC comics. And, and I'm, not, I'm not familiar with that total world, but it's all about some new hero. What's interesting here is when we see that God, through Jesus, acting as our deliverer, he's acting as our hero. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, it says, And raised us up together, again, this is resurrection talk, and made us sit together in the heavenly places, how? In Christ Jesus. So here's, what, here's the imagery here. We go from crisis to a whole new reality in Jesus. Our life before Jesus, crisis. 
our life after Jesus, a whole new reality that continues to unfold as we understand his love for us and, and how he desires so much more for us. Now, in that reality that he's died to give us that was guaranteed by the resurrection, there's a present reality in which we can live above this current reality. So many of us, as John even, Jonathan even mentioned, I don't even know those name of my own son. Anyway, uh, Jonathan mentioned a while ago, he, he was, he's talking about that so many of us are down. So many of us are really suffering through this time. This is, this is new territory. This is a new normal, at least it feels for now. And, and, and it's one of those things that's really pressing in on many people. I've talked to many people. Sometimes it's fear associated with this. Sometimes it's just you can't see and it's just hard to see the good that can come of this. There are literally people that we know that are dying and, and, and go, suffering as a result of what we're in. But the Bible says because of this new reality that we can live above this current reality. But there's not only a present reality, there's a future reality. Live beyond this current situation. You see, this life is but a moment. But eternity, that's a long time. And basically when we look at this moment of our existence in this present reality, we need to realize there is a future reality that will take us further than this, way much further than this. And there's something that we find in Scripture that talks about that future reality. Some of you have heard me say this before. It's the idea of the no mores. One day we're going to live in a whole new reality in which there will be no more death, no more sorrow, no more disease or virus, no tears, no flesh, no world, no enemy. One day there's also going to be the much mores, the streets of gold, the pearly gates, the walls of jasper, the very throne of God. One day we will be delivered from this world, but in the meantime we can live above this world and beyond this world. Next, we not only find our crisis and God's cure, but we find his causes. Why would God go to the extent that he did by sending his son in the death barrel and then the resurrection? What was the extent of all that really about? And, 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 and the primary purpose we need to see this was that he could display his grace. The primary purpose of God sending his son to die in our place was not only to provide the salvation for us, but also to demonstrate His grace for all, all eternity. So look at verse 7. He's basically saying all this is in place that in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace. It's really the idea that God wants to show off His grace to humanity. Sin enters the world. He deals with it as a response. We are responding through to His grace that He extended us to something that we did not deserve, His love. And we see that. So here's what we need to understand as we make our way into these verses. Salvation is all about what God provides, not by what we can earn. So we see not only His display of grace, but we also see in this text His display of His kindness. latter part of verse 7, in His kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. You see, so many people that I talk to they have a hard time seeing the goodness of God. They, they have a hard time seeing the kindness of God because their lives have been touched by so many calamities and turmoil and different things and broken relationship and other people who are broken promises. And many times they associate these things with God Himself by saying, God, why would you allow this in my life? 
You see, it's not a matter. Here's what we need to understand. God, listen, died, sent his son to die and was resurrected to give us a new reality. In that new reality is not only a new world that's coming, but also a new reality to live above this, to live above that. And from that will be the kindness can be demonstrated. But we must keep in mind, we live in a flawed world. We live in a flawed world. So we see our crisis. We see his cure. We see his causes. But next we see our carnality. And that's really that whole idea of our tendencies. You see, our tendency is to earn what is freely given. Now look at verse 8. For by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Let me just say this. If you try to earn your salvation, that's one of the most offensive things you can do before God. I mean, think about the great extent that He went to provide this salvation for us. Sent His Son. Sent His very Son to to take a terrible beating. To to go to a cross. To to be uh, made vulnerable. Think about it. Deity became vulnerable before man. All this would be offensive if we thought that we could gain this because we could earn it. Think about it. God offers salvation at the great expense of His Son's life. And then we say, that's okay, God. I, have, I prefer my own way. You see, when you really think about it, there are two offenses that come with the idea that we can earn our way. By overlooking what Christ has provided really reveals ungratefulness. But not only that, thinking you could pay your sin debt also reveals the sense of pride that many have. Now, works has no place in the terms God set up for His salvation. The only thing we bring to the table for our salvation is faith. Think about it. Salvation does not come by works, by religion, or by anything that we may conceive as earning God's grace. God, grace saves us through faith. Nothing more, nothing less. Consider the three words you see in verse 8. There's the word grace, saved, and faith. Grace is the source, faith is the means, and salvation is the result. Or you may, might say it this way, grace is the reservoir, faith is the channel, and salvation is the stream that washes away my sins, that takes care of my salvation, that takes care of my crisis, my greatest need. But not only that, our tendency is to earn what is freely given, but to also display our own glory. Look at verse 9. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. I think sometimes when we read this phrase and, or these verses, and many of us are familiar with these verses, I think many times we read this and it's just God saying and emphasizing, oh, it's about grace. Please don't think you need to do anything to earn this. It's just a gift. No, I think it's stronger than that. I think he's trying to reveal how offensive it is for you to think that you could earn your own salvation. I think that's why he's trying to communicate here. And here's why I think that. It's the idea that God will never share his glory. You see, if you're, I don't, I don't anticipate seeing people in heaven walking arm in arm with Jesus, basically saying, boy, we did it, didn't we? No. He will not share his glory. It is about him. Our salvation is about him. It's about who he is and what he has provided. And then next, we see his confirmation. 
When it comes to this whole idea of salvation, and that whole idea when it says, but God, and we move from who we once were, dead in our, in our sins, and we're moving into this new reality that where we move from our crisis to His cure, there are certain things that come from that. And the first thing we see here is His gift for us in verse 8. It says, it is the gift of God. The, the word it there is talking about salvation. And, and it says it's basically provided by Jesus' death and resurrection. And you see, it couldn't be said any clearer than John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth on Him should not perish, but have this everlasting life. And then next, there's a provision, there's a whole idea of confirmation, His gift for us. And then next, the fact that His masterpiece is us. Try to get your mind around that. But look at verse 10. For we are His workmanship. Some of your translations, if you're looking at a Bible, could say His masterpiece. And then he says this. We are His masterpiece. And it doesn't stop there. If it stopped there, that means that we could be a masterpiece in so many different ways. But he tells us why we're considered a masterpiece. Here it is. Created in Christ Jesus. It literally means provided by Christ Jesus. We are His masterpiece, and the only reason we are is because of the provision of Jesus Christ. So as it relates to this world, we, think about this, we are the crowning achievement of Almighty God. Let that sink in. Some of you may say, well, that's kind of prideful thinking, isn't it? Well, let's go back to, again to our story. Let's go back to the creation. God creates all these things, and He says it's good. And then he creates man and he says, and it's very good. It's the artist that admired his work. And all of a sudden, as he admires his work, it's flawed. But think about it. Before that, his crowning achievement, his crowning thing was that right there. And then next, the next thing we see is the whole idea that God wants to restore that masterpiece. And guess how he does it in a fallen world? He does it by those who partake of the salvation that he so freely offers. Think about this. This literally means that we are trophies of his grace. And he delights in displaying us for the entire world to see. It seems that nothing else brings him as much glory as the life of one who has been saved by his grace. And that's truly his masterpiece. As we prepare to close, let, let, me, let me give you this. I want you to think on this this morning. Does your life reveal and reflect that you're God's masterpiece? Which He provided through Jesus' death and guaranteed through His resurrection. When you think about your life, when you think about what it all consists of, He says this. He says you had a story before Jesus, now you got a story after Jesus. It's that whole idea that, that He has so much more for us. There's a new reality that He seeks to bring into our lives. And it doesn't come by way of anything that we can create, but, but, but what He creates. For those of you who consider yourselves follower of Jesus, a follower of Jesus, and maybe you're partaking of His provision of salvation, maybe you need to be reminded this morning that He's still in control. You need to be reminded of that. You need to be reminded that He can accomplish great things even in the midst of these uncertain days.
great things. I've seen some of those things personally. Doesn't mean that there's not times I'm frustrated by it. But he can do great things through this. But really, you know what the greater question is here for you today is this? Do you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Have you come to that point where you have two stories? A life before Jesus and a life after Jesus. If that's not the case, this morning, our prayer for you is on this Easter morning in this unusual way of worshiping and hearing from His Word today, that maybe today as we're making these memories for many children, many of you sitting in the car attending a worship service, maybe the greatest memory that will come from this today is the fact that you prayed and asked Jesus to come into your heart. And as a result, there's a new reality that awaits you. There's this whole idea that He desires to not only uh, bring that provision through His death, burial, resurrection of His Son, but that whole death, burial, resurrection is something that is a testimony of who you are now because of something He's done, a new work in you. I don't know what it is, but I pray that God has shown you something here this morning, especially those of you who may not know Him as your Lord and Savior. Would you pray with me?